You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and co-author with Brookings President John Allen of a book about AI entitled Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. The metaverse is an immersive environment that combines virtual and augmented realities and allows people to integrate their digital and physical spaces. There's a lot of hype surrounding this concept and not everyone uses the term in the same way. So it is important to determine what it is and what issues it raises. Already there are questions about privacy, security, and data ownership. So it is vital to unpack this notion. To discuss these important questions, we are pleased to be joined by two distinguished experts. Tom Wheeler is a visiting fellow in the Governance Studies Program at Brookings and author of a forthcoming book entitled Checklash. Catherine Cross is a PhD candidate in the Information School at the University of Washington, where she writes about video games, social media, and online harassment. And she is the author of a great article in Wired about social media. So Tom and Catherine, welcome to our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Daryl. So Tom, I started this show with a brief description of the metaverse but mentioned not everyone defines it in the same way. So I want to start by asking you about your definition of the metaverse. What is it and what is new about it? Well, first of all, Daryl, thank you for asking me to participate. And it's great to be on here um, with Catherine. I'm looking forward to hearing what she has to say. The metaverse is a persistent, immersive online experience. Now, what does that mean? Today, you, when you go online, you go to a website, you type in a word and you see a result and it's a a 2D uh, experience. The metaverse turns that into a 3D experience where you aren't sitting there looking at the screen, but you have moved into the screen with an avatar, which is really an algorithm masquerading as a person, and that you feel you're right in there with people and at places as a presence, not just a viewer. So Catherine, how big of a deal is it in moving from 2D, as Tom put it, 3D. May I also just say thank you very much for having me, and it's wonderful to be in such distinguished company. The shift into three dimensions matters because essentially when you're in virtual reality, the value out of that experience is that you are essentially being tricked into thinking that you're really there. Your body is being tricked into thinking that you are immersed in this virtual world. That's what makes it a different experience from, say, playing a video game traditionally on a console or a computer. There's a certain submerged awareness 
of the unreality of the experience. And there are a lot of consequences to that. And also, just on the point of definitions, I think it's very important to underscore that the metaverse as a whole is receiving a great deal of hype because of Facebook's rebrand. But it's, it has led to people thinking the metaverse is a single entity that is owned by Facebook slash meta. And it's not. It basically is sort of a catch-all term at this point that is now being used for all virtual reality worlds, both ones owned by Facebook, like Horizon Worlds, and ones owned by a private in- other private individuals, uh, independent entities, and so forth. So, Tom, you've written specifically about the metaverse and argued that it raises meta-challenges. What are the meta-challenges that concern you? Oh, my goodness. We could talk forever uh, about that. Um, but let me uh, let me see if we can uh, summarize it this way. I, I said that in describing the metaverse, that it was algorithms posing as people. And Catherine just did a great clarification on that, that it's a trick <laughs> that gets played um, on, on you to think that you're there. So if you have algorithms posing as people, the algorithms are governing the experience. Who's going to govern the algorithms? And all of the concerns that we have failed to deal with in the 2D, the two-dimensional internet, return, but in magnified form. And... The challenge here is that the companies are now saying, well, we'll be responsible with this. And the question that I would ask is, well, how's that worked for, with you so far? Uh, how do you feel about the, your, your, your privacy? How do you feel like the non-competitive market? How do you feel about the impact on truth and trust? I mean, so if there are three concerns, three specific concerns that you would point to, one is, who controls the user's personal information when you are totally absorbed and you're spending, you know, we spend 20 or 30 minutes, you know, go on uh, on a website or something like this, but now you're involved and the headset that you're wearing has the ability not just to capture the traditional information that websites have captured about you, but your biophysical activities that can give insights into your emotion. I mean, Meta, for instance, has patented the ability to pick up your eye movement and infer from that what you're thinking or your facial, what's happening to your facial muscles and get emotional reaction out of that. So if you think that these online companies are, are privacy infringers today. Just think about, uh, about this. So we have a huge issue of who controls the user's information. And then you got to go to the questions that all come out of that is that the, the party that controls information controls the market because it's all data driven. And so how do you promote competition? Then you go to the next step, the party that controls the information that controls the market, then controls what goes out on that market. So how do you understand what what truth is? There's a Casey Newsom has a great example on this. So who makes the decision, for instance, 
when you put on a, a metaverse headset and you say United States Capitol, what image are you going to see and what information are you going to see? Are you going to see the Capitol building and a description that says, this is where our laws are made. There are 435 members of the House, and 100 members of the Senate. Or are you going to say, this is the site of the greatest upstand, uh, uprising for the people since 1776 when we tried to return power to the people? There's a decision that somebody's going to make about that. That decision is going to be based on this information that has been gathered. And then the last thing that I would say is that we also need to think about what are the human rights implications uh, of this. There was a there was a terrific article that the Guardian newspaper had that this the subheadline it was an article about about a person who had gone into the metaverse posed as a 13 year old and the subtitle of the article is barrage of assault racism and rape jokes. And so how are we going to determine, as I say, what are the human rights issues? What are our relationships with each other? What are our responsibilities towards towards each, each other in this? So I think those are the kinds of issues um, that get raised. And the trust me, we'll take care of this just doesn't fly because the same companies who are developing this certainly haven't been trustworthy in what they did with the 2D internet. Yeah, those are all uh, great points, Tom. Now, Catherine, I know you have written about the toxic aspects of the online world from social media to video games. What are your worries about this area? I think that uh, Tom makes a number of excellent points. Certainly the gathering of motility data, for instance, is something that many members of the public are unaware of as a prime incentive here. And I would also say, speaking of incentives for companies like Meta, that a huge part of the reason that they've made this enormous investment is that Facebook as a company has always had a great deal of control over information, but they have not controlled the hardware. They've always been dependent on other entities like Microsoft, Apple, other people who design platforms for Facebook to be used on. If they can control the market for VR headsets, that is going to be an enormous boom for them because they will control the entire sort of chain, if you like, from the manufacture of the hardware and the distribution of it to the virtual world that you access through it and all the information that it gathers, right? Sort of cuts out the middleman for them, which has been a long-standing dream of theirs. That should not be uh, underrated here in terms of their enormous push in this direction. And as to the issue of online abuse, like, I think that the point that I've tried to make a lot about Metaverse is that it is being treated as this big, spangly, shiny new thing. And for the reasons that we've discussed, there are aspects of it that are indeed novel. The quality immersive aspect is not to be denied. And that does influence how awful the harassment can feel because you feel like you're really there. But in terms of the social dynamics of it, we've been studying this for years in video games, in virtual worlds. We've been studying this since the days of, you know, of multi-user dungeons and wholly text-based games in the 
80s and 90s. We've seen it in virtual worlds like Second Life. We've seen it in online games like World of Warcraft or Final Fantasy XIV and so forth. The risk of online abuse, the fact that many of these environments were not necessarily designed to promote pro-social behavior, the fact that moderation is an underfunded afterthought, which is a problem that plagues social media and it plagues video games. But I think that video games have always had a lot to teach us in this regard and that that has been sort of underrated in a lot of the discussions about the metaverse, which is being treated as a, a wholly new thing, when in reality it is familiar to anyone who has worked in gaming spaces. It's just bringing those virtual worlds into a VR space, which creates an environment that has certain novel affordances, but where the social structure and the potential for harassment, for abuse, for racism, for all kinds of prejudice, for sexual harassment remains omnipresent. What's different is, as I said, that immersive aspect. And one thing that I've written about is how because the virtual reality environment sort of, as I say, tricks you into thinking that you're really there, there is this sort of barrier that exists between your conscious awareness of the environment as fake, as virtual, and what your lizard brain, as it were, is thinking, and it's experiencing this as being at least somewhat real. So when you experience an episode of sexual harassment, say, including with some of these new, more tactile features that have been added into the VR space, it feels more real than it might in, say, a World of Warcraft type environment, right? And so that that creates a whole new dimension, literally, for this type of abuse to occur. So, Dale, can I jump in here for a second? The, first of all, th thank you for, for plugging the forthcoming book, Techlash, Who Makes the Rules in the New Gilded Age. But one of the stories I tell in that book was that I had when I was chairman of the FCC with, with Mark Zuckerberg. And we're sitting in the office and we're his office and we're talking through a whole bunch of, of, of issues. And he kept saying, but I want you to go across the street. I want you to go across the street and, and see uh, Oculus because he had just paid several billion dollars to buy Ocu the Oculus headsets and all of the software that, that accompanies that. So we finished our visit and I walked across the street and, and, and I put on the, a VR headset and I, I, I fought a dragon and I leapt a tall building and I did all of these kinds of things. And I took the headset off and I said to myself, why in the world would he spend several billion dollars for this toy? Well, that shows the difference between Mark Zuckerberg's vision and mine, <laughs> because because clearly um, he had this this direction and 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 has been preparing for this and investing in this for nine or ten years. Now, those are uh, great points from uh, each of you about the uh, potential problems and just how having an immersive feature does change the nature of several of these uh, problems. So. Tom, at Brickings, you know we like to focus on solutions as well as problems. You have highlighted a number of problems with the metaverse. What should we do about these issues? 
Well, we got to start with learning from experience, and and you know we have we have done a very poor job establishing public interest expectations for the internet. You know, they it is it is those folks who wrote code who wrote the rules, and and our representatives in government have not established a set of public interest expectations. If we go into the metaverse without having addressed the basic issues that we're dealing with today, and this is going to be like kindergarten compared to what happens when when the metaverse becomes manifest, then we're we're hobbling ourselves for the future. I mean, the, and I do think that this ties into to some something that I've advocated here at Brookings uh, and that has been introduced in legislation in the Congress, and that is the need for a federal agency with oversight, responsibility, and technical expertise to deal with digital platforms. That 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 the reality is that technology is moving so fast that government can't keep up with it. And the default of that reality is that the companies end up making the rules. And what we need is we need a set of basic public interest expectations, basic principles, and and an agile regulatory approach as a pro as opposed to the very rigid regulatory approach that we follow now but we need an agile regulatory approach to apply those principles to constantly changing conditions because the world isn't going to stop with the metaverse there'll be n plus one developments after that we need to say here are the basic kinds of concepts to which a society should adhere. And we will have a referee on the field to, flo- to throw the flag when those concepts are not adhered to. Okay, Catherine, what do you think we should do about the challenges you raise? You talk about problems of harassment, privacy, issues of data ownership. How should we deal with those issues? I think that in addition to what Tom talked about, like there does need to be a regulatory framework that is built around three sort of broad principles. One, proceeding from individual and human rights. So recognizing that the time is now long past for us to have a sort of digital bill of rights that establishes people as the final arbiters of their data, especially this biophysical data, as the ultimate owners of it who get to decide what happens to it and who are given a great deal of transparency about how it's used rather than impenetrable legalese that you are induced to just click through in a second without reading it. We all know that's how that works. And shifting instead towards a more human rights-based approach that proceeds from recognizing that individual rights do extend to this space. The second principle being to recognize the reality of the space, which means that existing laws and existing regulations may well 
apply to it, right? Like, strictly speaking, when it comes to things like child endangerment, for instance, you don't need new laws to deal with what's going on in cyberspace. It already remains illegal. What you need is to be conversant with the language and experience of the space. You need uh, technical expertise. You need cultural competency. You don't necessarily need to draft new legislation. And third is to recognize that it is well past time to seriously regulate cryptocurrency and things like NFTs, because that sort of explosion of Web3 nonsense has, I think, come to be a key motivating factor for developing space in the metaverse, where a lot of people are starting to dream of this as sort of the the key to monetizing it, right? Because if you look at one of the most popular platforms, and I strongly encourage you to, a VR chat, There was a fantastic video put out recently by Quentin Smith of People Make Games. It was entitled uh, Making Sense of VR Chat, the Metaverse People Actually Like. And it's a lovely 30-minute documentary actually talking to users of the space. And uh, that makes a point that I'll return to in a moment. But VR Chat needs to monetize itself in order to profit. And cryptocurrency is seen as a key way to do that. We're already witnessing the depredations of the crypto crash, right? People are losing their their savings. People have lost uh, tens of thousands of dollars individually. People need to be protected from this. It's been at once darkly hilarious and terribly sad to watch people essentially call for reinventing the wheel on institutions like the FDIC, right, for cryptocurrency. And I think that the time is long past to take that seriously. So recognizing the, you know, as I said, the the need for a human rights centered approach, recognizing where existing laws can apply if you just have cultural competency and regulation of currently unregulated securities. These things actually are what are needed. And I would also want to stress here to pull the pin that I had put in earlier that there are a lot of wonderful people doing wonderful things in virtual spaces like VR chat in particular. What you're seeing is in the best of circumstances, an efflorescence of culture that is akin to the best aspects of the anonymous, unregulated internet of the aughts. Reminds me quite a bit of the internet that I knew when I was when I was growing up, you know, in the aughts. I was a, a teenager and in my you know, very early 20s, and it was a a rather different world, somewhat riskier, but also with all the benefits of anonymity, which I think should be underscored as a human right, by the way, not for nothing, where there was freedom to explore one's identity. There are people in these spaces who are, you know, as people did in uh, past virtual worlds, coming out as trans or who feel safe in their gender expression or their sexual identity. There's a robust furry community that finds safety and refuge in places like VR chat. And there are people doing everything from creating museums to creating chill workspaces to even apparently recreating Kmart, right, as an experience. And it's 
fun, ridiculous, silly, and delightful in all the best ways. And I want to make absolutely sure that any regulatory solutions that we bring to bear on the many problems of the metaverse do not snuff out these candles of creativity, of individual liberty, of people finding safety and refuge and a place for self-expression, right? That is a long-standing conundrum in regulating and moderating the internet. It will, as everything else will, become more pressing, as you know, Tom put it so well, and plus one problems begin to emerge from the growth of the space. But that's my full take on how to address these issues. Now, those are all uh, great points. Thank you for uh, bringing them out. So, Tom, how are other countries handling issues of the metaverse? Is there any nation or set of nations making changes that you would view as constructive shifts? I think everybody's playing catch-up ball. And, uh, you know, if you were to focus on, on any group of nations, the EU, at least, has begun to address the questions of how do we deal with the 2D online experience? The UK has begun to ask similar questions. We in the United States have failed to ask um, those questions. Well, no, we've asked the questions. We've had, we've, we've had an endless number of hearings and gone about them. And, and so I go back to where I started. I, I think we're playing catch up ball. But let me, let me piggyback on something Catherine said a minute ago. Her three points are spot on. And, but when she talked about crypto and NFT, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. This is innovation that is being driven not for consumers, but for those who sell to consumers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that Meta, formerly Facebook, gets 47.5% of all transactions that would occur on its platform mm-hmm. tells you what's going on there. The kinds of things that Catherine talked about, I mean, the wonders and the niches that can be opened up and the fact that, for instance, Boeing is starting to design a new airplane in the metaverse. I'm a history buff. I'd love to go to the Battle of Gettysburg in the metaverse. These are all incredibly fabulous things that will result. But we've got to understand that the the, the, the throttle and the tiller is being driven right now by people who are saying, well, this is a new way for me to sell things. Mm-hmm. So, Catherine, are some of these problems really about selling things? Is this about virtual goods and control of the data associated with e-commerce and other types of sales? I think that when it comes to, as Tom said, you know, a lot of the people who are driving the innovation of the, the technology, and also people who are pushing things like cryptocurrency. Yes, absolutely. It is capitalism at its most septic, honestly. I think that when it comes to some of the cultural innovations in the space, when you look at what people are doing with VR chat, for instance, that that sort of platform, that's driven as much by individual creativity. But there's enormous worry in those spaces. And these are, these are sort of wholly independent spaces. You can think of them as sort of the 
uh, virtual reality equivalent of a GeoCities webpage, right? Like a, a Huawei unaffiliated little node of the internet that is not part of, you know, the, the three websites that we all visit nowadays, right? And it's sort of the VR equivalent of that. And those people are deeply worried about what is going to happen when VR chat tries to monetize more aggressively, tries to find a way to make a profit, right? Because at the moment, these sorts of decentralized, more truly free spaces, which also have an enormous content moderation problem, as Tom noted from that, uh, it was a BBC investigation, actually, that involved like you know posing as a 13 year old and watching what happened and it was absolutely deeply unpleasant that's the dark side as always of that lack of of moderation but it must be said that you know a lot of the people who are not awful in vr chat and really are using it to create you know places like a music store where you can listen to all the records on display for instance or uh, a fantasy castle where you can just chill and do your homework those people are deeply worried about corporations coming in and predating on this closing off their ability to express themselves but also strip mining the place for profit you know the 47% cut that Facebook wants to take from, you know, Horizon Worlds, for instance, I think is the, it's going to be the going model for how this is all meant to work. And that's certainly going to be at your expense, where they are going to charge you as much as they can get away with, where they're going to take a significant cut of whatever creativity, whatever business you try to create in the space. And yes, I think that what's driving this right now is a push for profit, right? I, I've said multiple times that we are moving into a phase of capitalism where although raw materials, things extracted from the earth and hard manufacturing, building things in factories are still an important part of the global economy and will be for obvious reasons because we will need those things, we are still running out of those resources and capitalism is you know trying to invent new solids to melt into air essentially and that means creating virtual worlds where the value of what's in them is uh is wholly made up right it's just you're creating things and assigning a monetary value to them that exists only in this virtual space that the nfts are the sort of apotheosis of this of you know garbage artwork that is assigned an astronomical financial value right but there are lesser varieties of this that have proliferated throughout virtual spaces for years like if you look at an online game yet again right that that is the past that is prologue to all this you see online stores in a game like star wars the old republic for instance you can buy loot boxes that have randomized items in them and you pay real money for this but these items are only virtual they exist only in the game that you know jedi robes or lightsabers or speeders that your character can use and they exist only in that space and the the upfront manufacturing cost of these virtual goods, if you like, is extremely low, 
right? It's not, it doesn't require a supply chain. It doesn't require actual physical manufacturing. It requires someone to code it, design the art for it, but then you can just control C and control V that ad infinitum, right? And make an enormous profit off of it. That is what is drawing a lot of these companies to these spaces, as I said, to just invent new solids to melt into air. It's a new frontier for capitalism. And the effects of that should not be underestimated. Well, those are terrific insights. I want to thank Tom and Catherine for sharing their thoughts with us today. At Brookings, we write regularly about digital technology. You can find more information on our Brookings Tech Tank blog located at brookings.edu. So thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings. Thank you.